This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 53. Today we speak with William Dennison about his book, The Young Boltman. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey, and I have with me today Jim Cassidy, who is pastor of Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. Good morning, Jim. Hi, Camden. How are you? Good. It's good to have you with us. And we also have uh, Jeff Waddington, who is a teacher of this that very same congregation. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. And our guest today is the author of The Young Boltman, Context for His Understanding of God, an excellent book. We have with us Professor William Dennison. He's Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. Good morning, Bill. It's great to have you with us. Good morning. Very pleased to be with you. Yes, we're really interested. We're, we've got a fascinating topic ahead of us for all those people out there who are interested in the history of ideas. This book is excellent. We're going to pick his brain here in a minute about Boltman and where his theology came from and how his context and surroundings influenced him. But first, Jeff, we have some new books to talk about, don't we? Well, just one uh, since our last recording, and uh, in light of yesterday's events, uh, this may be of interest. It's uh, Mark Knoll has a new book entitled God and Race in American Politics, uh, Princeton University Press. Uh, and that's available at the Westminster Bookstore for 1744. What's interesting is they list it as having 22 pages. I don't know if that's correct. Is that possible? Is that possible? It's a hardback, guys. I mean, if it was a booklet, and the price, you know, suggests that there's a there may be an error there, but uh, <laughs> might be worth sending off an email to those to the folks and say, look, you may want to check that. But anyway, well, if it's published by Ashgate, the price actually might be correct. No, it, it's Princeton University. <laughs> yeah. It could Should very be well correct. be. It, it could. <laughs> It could very well be. It says a short history. That's <laughs> twenty-two pages. <laughs> very short history. But anyway, it looks it looks interesting. Uh, it it ties in with some of the work that Noel has done already. Uh, America's God and the Civil War is a theological crisis. So, uh, not that I'm not saying I not having read it, I don't know that I would agree with him. I'm just saying it looks like uh, an interesting title that uh, ought to be looked into. Great. Well, anyway, that. That's it for new new material. And uh, you can, of course, catch our other uh, show, the Reformed Media Review, for uh, up to the week, uh, book news and discussion. Uh, you can visit us at reformedforum.org slash RMR for that. Well, if that's all the news we have today, we can jump right into our subject because I'm really excited to speak about this. Uh, as I mentioned, Dr. Dennison has written the book, the Young Boltman, Context for His Understanding of God, 1884 to 1925. It's available from American University Studies. Uh, you can check that out at Amazon.com. Uh, Westminster's not carrying this at the moment. Uh, or you can get it through Interlibrary Loan if you'd like. But this is an interesting book about the history of Boltman's thought. Now, Dr. Dennison, could you provide for us uh, just a really brief context for who Rudolf Boltman was maybe what his importance to the theological realm was, and, and a little bit of history, a little biography about him? Yes, uh, Rudolf Boltmann was considered one of the most uh, critical uh, scholars of the 20th century. 
He was a very dominant figure um, uh, in the starting and around 1920 on his uh, work on form criticism with respect to the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, the his connection also with um, the uh, existential philosopher Martin Heidegger is, was very strongly documented in that century. Uh, he was considered by many to be what we would call an existential uh, theologian, an mm-hmm. existential Christian theologian, but definitely of the more critical side. I want to hesitate just calling him liberal because there's a difference between the movement in which he was a part of, and he was critical of the German liberal uh, theology. He was a professor, a uh, longtime professor at uh, Marburg University, where he was a professor in New Testament studies. Probably he was most famous for the, the present, presentation of a hermeneutic uh, in which uh, he was called the demythologizing hermeneutic. Basically and simply is, uh, Volkmann understood that the, uh, the, the revelation or biblical text arose out of a context, a cultural context, in which mythology was a very strong uh, paradigm, mm-hmm. and, uh, and what he did was try to figure out a way to exegete the scripture uh, and so that he would demythologize to get at the real meaning, or if we would like to put it, the existential meaning uh, of the text and how it would be relevant for us in our own particular culture. That essay, if I failed to mention it, was written in 1941 uh, and uh, became a very, very dominant. You could almost argue that, uh, I think you could convincingly argue that Boltmann and, and Bart are the two principal figures in the critical tradition uh, of, of, of theology in the 20th century. However, Boltmann, to be honest, uh, after his death in 1976, uh, some work on him has definitely faded to the background where Bart has continued to be very popular after his mm-hmm. death. Uh, there are reasons for that, um, I think. But, uh, but nevertheless, uh, this, the Boltmann's uh, career ended in about 1951 at Marburg, his teaching career, and uh, he was a very, very formative person uh, in the discussions of hermeneutics and so forth. As you can see on the title of yeah. my book, I decided not to dive into the question of hermeneutics with Boltmann. The reason being is there were there have been <laughs> there were so many dissertations. Um, and this book is really a product, an update on my PhD dissertation at Michigan State University. Right. So um, it's uh, so there were so many dissertations on his um, on his hermeneutical method that I wanted to make sure that uh, I did something a little bit different and something a little bit more creative with Boltmann. Now, what what motivated you to study him initially? I mean, you had done work at Westminster uh, in Philadelphia, 
and and you did mention that Bart uh, and Boltman were two of the biggest figures at the time, but that Boltman seemed has seemingly faded into the background. What made it? What motivated you to study Boltman and this subject in particular? Well, that's that's a good question. Uh, Roger A. Johnson, one of the foremost uh, Boltman scholars, uh, asked me the same question. Matter of fact, when I contacted him, he was teaching at Wellesley College. Uh, in uh, Massachusetts when I contacted him, and uh, he was even more perplexed why a Calvinist would be interested in <laughs> <Right>. Beaumont. <laughs> so, so, but anyways, uh, I was introduced mainly in a Boltman seminar plus a modern theology seminar to his thought by the late Robert Knudsen, who taught at Westminster Seminary, and I became very, very fascinated with his thought. Um, I am a part of, <laughs> I'm a type of person, I should say it like this, that uh, I, when I sit and listen to somebody, I'm always trying to figure out what makes them tick. <laughs> so that was what became fascinating to me, is what really makes uh, someone think in this way. And being trained uh, at Westminster Seminary, um, and listening to uh, Dick Gaffin's lectures himself, then listening to Newton. Yes, he was from a Dewey Verdian perspective, but nevertheless, he like Van uh, Dewey Verd like Van Til incorporates a transcendental critique of the, the people in which they are investigating. I I decided, hey, I'd like to start working on Boltman and see what uh, uh, what really is the foundations, what are the structures, as we would like to say, what are the structures of his thought? Can we unpack them and see why he's thinking in this manner? And so uh, so he became a sort of, uh, at that time, a pet hobby of mine to read and to look at. Uh, so then uh, when I was accepted for my Ph.D. studies at Michigan State University, uh, I decided that, uh, well, here's an opportunity to really dive in. Now, you gentlemen may find this very uh, sort of interesting. My original goal was to work on his apologetics. Oh. He does have some interesting articles on natural revelation in the 1930s, the po- his view of the point of contact in the 1930s, and so, as the question is often raised, if you're a somewhat of a kind of universalist, uh, what would be the use of apologetics? Right. If you don't believe in the propositional truth of the document of Scripture, what would be the use of apologetics in terms of Christianity? If, Christian, if the truth of, of Christianity is an encounter uh, with the gospel through the charisma, what would be the apologetics? <laughs> That's a and great so point. I was right. interested in diving into that question, but uh, as you can see, that question was suspended. <laughs> but one thing you do mention, you have an entire chapter on the consistency of Boltman's thought, right? I mean, yes. and so we might stand back and ask, well, what, why would you be interested in apologetics if you're doing what you're doing with the New Testament? But but you're arguing that he is absolutely consistent there in, in his thinking. Yeah, he is. Uh, my, my argument is he's he's consistent uh, in terms of his own presuppositions sure, in his absolutely. thought. He's marvelously consistent. My argument has been my argument has been is that 
it's much easier <laughs> in some ways for me to read Boltmann than to read Bart. Okay. Bart really does put you in a position in which you are very difficult to really understand what actually the gentleman is really trying to say. I think that's a lot of the complexity. Boltmann, there's there's no there's no question. Let me give you an example of that. Does Karl Barth believe in the bodily resurrection? That's been an ongoing debate. Okay, most evangelical Bardians, is the way I would put them, maintain dogmatically that he does. But this has been a, this has been a serious question concerning when you're reading the language and the dogmatics and, and the church dogmatics concerning the resurrection. Does he really actually believe in the bodily resurrection? You gentlemen would know that this was also a question that Van Til sort of has to address in that. Now, with Boltmann, there's no mystery. Absolutely no mystery. It's, it's as clear as day. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ uh, did not rise from the dead in the realm of history. He rose from the, realm, the dead in the realm of Geshit. Right, right. In this existential thing. There's, there's no mystery. He doesn't believe in a bodily resurrection of Christ. So the, the bodily resurrection of Christ is a myth for Boltmann. No mystery at all. So, Bolt, and so if you start working through Boltmann's thought, you start to figure out that this is nevertheless very, very consistent, very consistent with his neo-Kantian dualism in terms of this setup. And that comes extended over to uh, uh, his existential thought. The core of my book and the argument that I am making is along that was set and introduced to me by the 1974 book, Roger A. Johnson's On the Origin of Demythologizing, uh, book on Boltmann, which, which uh, Bob Knudsen introduced us to in this seminar. is that book that I read, and it is that book that launched the whole discussion, at least those who are discussing Boltmann, in terms of should we understand, should we understand Boltmann's origin of his thought, the structure of his thought in existentialism, Heideggerian existentialism, or should we now understand his thought in respect to Neo-Kantianism? Uh, Roger A. Well, Johnson. Hey, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Bill, to cut you off. Um, just for our listeners, be able to define for us uh, particularly uh, Neo-Kantianism and, and, and how that might differ from uh, uh, Paleo-Kantianism and uh, the difference uh, between the two philosophical schools, because that kind of sets the scene for understanding Boltman, I think. Yes. What happens in the Neo-Kantian thought, in the, in the key Neo-Kantians that, uh, that uh, Boltman encounter are teaching at Marburg when he was a student there. There are two philosophers, Herman Cohen and Paul Natorp. And there is the principal theologian, neo-Kantian theologian in the Lutheran tradition, uh, Wilhelm Hermann. Mm -hmm. That may ring a bell to your yeah. listeners as well, as well as to you gentlemen, is because that is the person in which caused the most struggle by J. Jemf Gresham Machen in his studies when he studied at, at Marburg. He was taken by Hermann. 
What happens with neo-Kantianism is that neo-Kantianism is a revival of Kantianism. Yes, it is. At the end of the 19th century, with the situation of positivism in the 19th century, we had now dismissed any type of transcendental knowledge at all in the realm of religion or possibly even in terms of, of humanistic religion. Okay. So what happens is the neo-Kantians decide that the positivist uh, uh, paradigm is not sufficient, is not sufficient, obviously, in a synthesis with religion. Religion must come back into play. How, it, how can it come into play? It comes into play in terms of a contrast, the Kantian contrast basically here of the phenomenal realm and the noumenal realm. Now, what neo-Kantianism did is it radicalized the concept of the mind. It radicalized the concept of the phenomenal realm. This is the, can be very, very interesting. This can be very interesting and is difficult for some people to actually understand and believe that someone would even say this. The neo-Kantianism says that the exterior world that I see outside of me is my own creation. It's the creation of my mind. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't prove, in a sense, the old discussion of modern questions, the modern question since Descartes in philosophy is whether things exist outside the mind. Okay? Whether objects outside of the mind actually exist. Neo-Kantianism absolutizes, absolutizes that Descartian paradigm through Kant himself to the point where they actually say that <laughs> the world outside there, the empirical world in which I observe, is created by the mind. Now you may ask, the next question always is, is, well, why do I see the same tree the same way you see the tree outside my mind? It's because you now we're back to Kant, because we all share the same categories of the mind. That's why. So there's a kind of universalism there that goes on. That's why we perceive things. But this is, a, and this is an incredible, incredible concept of humanism. In other words, in other words the, human, the human mind creates the external world, not God. Mm-hmm. Not so how is that... How is that different than uh, than Kant, or or, or, or is there um, no advancement between what no, Kant there, said? No, there and is then... because Kant will not make make that as absolute as absolute in the subjectivism. It's no doubt. I would agree. You know, when you read the pre- pure critique, that there's a subjectivism. I believe Kant is a subjectivist. Okay. When I did my PhD study on that, I made that argument in my papers for my professor, and he, who is a Kantian scholar, did not have any disagreement with that. But this abs- but there's a sense in which the intensity, the intensity of this is much more radical and stronger, okay, than, 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 uh, than Kant, uh, in terms of the use of the mind. The categories are basically the same. There's not much difference at all. Now, then what happens here is like in, 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 with respect to Kant, there has to be a place for religion, okay? 
So what's interesting here is what the um, um, what the neo-Kantians said was the moral world, the aesthetic world, okay, okay, and the cultural world are all creators of, are all created by the human mind, but the individual world of religion, okay, religion is something different. It's on a different level. It's on a different level of experience. And so they made, so they used the German, two German words to distinguish that experience. Erfahren, meaning everyday experience, was used for the experience of aesthetics, culture, and morality. But religion is experienced only by erlebnis, they said. This goes back to Goethe and people like that, in which religion is a moment of experience within the subject itself. That's mm. why you can actually ask whether really a transcendent God actually exists in this system. <laughs> mm -hmm. But this became mm -hmm. the dualism, the dualism between Erfaren and Erlebnis with respect to experience and what I am experiencing. So in the Kantian, in the Kantian, neo-Kantian dualism, for Boltmann and for uh, Hermann, he saw this in Hermann being applied. So what Boltmann does, excuse me, is he applies this, he applies this to Christianity. Christianity in the object, in the world of objectivity, Erfaren, morality, okay, in the sense of the creation of the morality, of, of culture, and so forth, and, and aesthetics, is not Christianity, the truth of Christianity, cannot be found in that objective world of my experience. Christianity must be found in the, in the one moment of experience of me as an individual, they use that kind of terminology, somewhat, or an existential becomes known as this progresses into Heidegger, picks up the language, as an existential encounter with God himself through the kerygma. I have, therefore, an enlightenment experience with religion. And so, so that, that keeps the dualism very strongly and serious. That's why, let me, let me say one more thing at this point, that's why Boltmann is against liberal Christianity in Germany. Liberal Christianity reduced Christianity to a social, cultural, you see, Erfarwin, religion. Also, mm. also, he and Bart cut off ties in the late 20s. Boltmann accusing Bart of objectifying God in the realm of morality through the concept of psychology. Christianity cannot be reduced to an objective side of morality through the psychological aspect of human <laughs> beings. That's the loss of the purity of the existential moment of religion for Boltmann. 
It's so, very, very, um, it's very interesting, but very complex. <laughs> I'm sure you're probably your listeners are completely lost. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, to piggyback off that last comment, um, uh, Boltman, and because you you address this in your book, and uh, so I'm I'm asking to to get into this issue in your book, um, Boltman and Schleiermacher, essential continuity or discontinuity. No, it's a continuity. It's very, very important. Um, uh, and uh, Mark Chapman of Oxford in the, in the review of the book picked up on that very well and correctly. Um, and that is that uh, there becomes an interesting, interesting background here, the 19th century, where um, uh, <clears throat> Schleiermacher becomes a principal character and father of what is called this kind of middle school in Germany. Most of you gentlemen are probably familiar with the name Hengstenberg. Mm-hmm. You see, that is the very conservative, you see, the very the orthodox side. But on the other side were the real radical liberals of Strauss. You see, you may remember concerning Strauss, he even raises the question concerning his, his view of Christianity, whether Christ actually, actually, Jesus Christ actually existed. <laughs> right. See, that radicals. So there is this kind of mediating school that emerges in Germany, and, uh, and that mediating school sort of adopts more and more as the century ad- uh, uh, progresses Schleiermacher as their father. Boltmann's father was a pastor, and uh, and it seems to me uh, that it is clear that uh, the influence of his father was very profound on Boltmann, and his father was part of the kind of mediating school. He was very sympathetic to Schleiermacher. That was where it comes in. There is some questions of whether his mother totally agreed with that in terms of her pietistic background as well, possibly a little bit more conservative theologically. I don't have enough letters yet to make that kind of judgment, but yet I do bring that up in the book at least uh, as a question. So you, uh, so Schleiermacher becomes a very, very principled person. And so there's this little, little letter, I mean, there's this little statement in a letter that Boltmann is, which places him in a position so strongly as he feels his ties as a young man to Schleiermacher that he begins his theological education, he begins his theological education as a, as at at Tübingen in 1903, and it become and then he goes to Berlin, right. and you can tell he's on this quest, on this quest to find somebody from his personal letters, someone who can carry the banner of Schleiermacher. Hmm. He doesn't find anybody in his studies there, including when he's at Berlin including Van Harnack, who he is anticipating learning under. He's even disappointed with Van Harnack. He, and this is the part of the crucial aspect of my argument in the, in the book. 
Then he arrives at Marburg. Let me just back up for one second and point out, his father encouraged him to go to various institutions. You right. may say, wow, wow, why would he go to all these schools? And the reason is his father encouraged him to go to all these schools to get sort of the best of these schools in terms of his education. You said he kind of learned the academic climate of each as he was there and kind of soaked it in and then moved to the next one. Exactly. But in each one, he was disappointed. And he, and he writes those that clearly in terms of his letters, that he's disappointed in his education in all those places. When he gets to Marburg, <clears throat> when he gets to Marburg, um, he sits, the first semester he is there, he is sitting in Nator's class. And all of a sudden, he starts seeing, and now that's the philosopher now, he starts seeing parallels in terms of his thinking, and with this idea of Schleiermacher, you know, that the faith is understood as an experience, mm-hmm. as, a, as an experience. He yeah. starts seeing this, and he so he's sort of taken by that, and he starts listening more keenly, and then he knows he's going to take Hermann as well. And so he, then he takes Hermann, and then the point being, and my, my argument is, is that when he sits in his class, he sees the neo-Kantian dualism applied to, applied to Lutheran theology, which is his roots, and he also sees that that uh, that Hermann has an incredible appreciation with Schleiermacher, sees himself in continuity with Schleiermacher. Now, this is not to say there isn't elements of discontinuity in terms of your question, but for the most part, this idea that Christianity is basically a uh, faith experience, that idea and then working that out uh, in the what we would call the critical tradition, uh, there he uh, sort of sees, sees Hermann as his, as his theological mm. father. Now, you mentioned... Now, of course, uh, Kant changed the whole history of philosophy, especially in Germany. And and you mentioned that uh, uh, Boltmann was was impacted and incorporated elements from Bart and, and Gogarten. How do you pronounce that name? I always get yeah, that's Gogarten. Gogarten. Um, that's, yeah, yeah. Now he also is it correct? He t- he took over for Natorp at Marburg eventually. Uh, uh, Boltmann. Yeah. Is, no, 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 okay. no, 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 because he's in the area of New Testament, Nator oh, okay. in the area of philosophy. But he eventually so, came on faculty at Marburg later, he, did he not? Yes, yes, he did. He, he uh, comes on, it is a, uh, as I say it, is that he, he looks at it as coming home, mm-hmm. okay, and, uh, and so he moves back to, to, to uh, Marburg, um, um, uh, right now, my mind's gone blank in terms of the exact year, but anyways, um, that's uh, he comes back there at the beginning of, of the. T- he's there in place, and he's there seriously in place in uh, nineteen nineteen twenty. The big thing there uh, that impacts him, it, you spend a lot of time on, is his, his deep friendship with uh, Heidegger at Marburg, and how Correct. that that really impacted him. How did his, his uh, friendship with Heidegger uh, really shape and form Boltmann and, and kind of 
just slightly alter or allow him to incorporate new elements into his theology? Well, this is where this is where the controversy uh, somewhat arises. Uh, um, this is in terms of my thesis in what is famously called the Macquarie thesis. Um, uh, in, in Macquarie, the great, uh, uh, done the great work on Boltmann in the 50s and in the 60s. Matter of fact, he just died recently. Uh, and his thesis was, which carried the day, that Boltmann's whole theology is shaped by Heidegger's existentialism. Okay? That is what my book is challenging. Mm-hmm. I am, as I said earlier, I'm following the paradigm. I've done more work on it than Roger A. Johnson when he introduced saying, no, the structures of Boltmann's thought lie in the neo-Kantian dualism. What Roger A. Johnson shared with me is that he said, he said to me, uh, when we talk, he says, but Bill, he says, I'm basing my argument, I'm basing my argument on two articles written in, in, in the, uh, late teens there, and the night, and, um, and I have not connected him ever, uh, to, um, <clears throat> to neo-Kantianism per se at the university. Somebody needs to do that with Marburg. Well, that's what I did. What I have done is I have discovered that, and I have, because I have his transcripts, I have Boltmann's transcripts from Marburg, that discovery, I think, is very important now on Boltmann's scholarship. I discovered that Boltmann sat in Nate Torp's class. In fact, in fact, I have all his class notes <laughs> in that class. And I have, and I've already um, uh, worked through those, and I'm working on, it's going to be, it's a long project, I'm writing, I'm writing an article on the analysis of that class, which I hope to even clearly further solidify that Natorp and the neo-Kantianism is the foundation of his thought. I, I'm wanting to um, uh, publish those notes, but I can't get permission from his daughter at mm-hmm. this point. And so, but uh, this is, anyway, yeah, we already have them translated. I have all the notes translated, so I'm working through those right now, which I think will have a very, very important impact if the Lord lets me do that in terms of the Boltmann scholarship, scholarship on making that connection. Now, moving ahead with respect to that, what we have with, uh, with, with Boltmann is my argument is this in contrast to the Macquarie thesis. My argument is this, that the structure of Boltmann's thought is already in place when he meets Heidegger in 1923. By the way, he comes to Marburg, I did find that date, it's 1921. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so, so, but Heidegger comes in 1923. Mm-hmm. They do hook up. They have a little, little uh, kind of symposium uh, in uh, in Boltmann's home with students together. They become very close friends, as that's been clearly documented, and that is fairly well known. But my argument is, is what happens is that Boltmann finds in Heidegger better terminology much assistance in terms of language 
to articulate to articulate his own neo-Kantian his own neo-Kantian foundational philosophy to his theology, and he applies it now to his neo-Kantian Lutheran theology. Mm. So the, this, my argument is that the structures of Boltmann's thought are already in place from Natorp and from Hermann in terms of his Lutheranism and in terms of his philosophical theology. Okay. What, what Heidegger does is he enables him to sort of clean it up, articulate that those dimensions, especially that in the dualism, the realm of religion, he helps him to formulate and use terminology that may be more helpful to describe what he's trying to communicate. That's my argument. Mm. So um, let's uh, just going back to uh, the idea of Boltman's God, um, his his understanding of who God is. If I, uh, I'm just going to play the ignoramus here, um, and, and I'm really good at doing that because I'm <laughs> oftentimes tending, um, but. When when you talk about uh, his his doctrine of God, it sounds an awful lot like what you get in Feuerbach, um, where there's this projection of the human consciousness. Um, it, it, it's all a subjective. I mean, it's almost like a Christian atheism, uh, whereas God doesn't somehow exist objectively, really, outside of me. But he, he he exists exclusively within me in my own existential experience as I come in contact with the uh, kerygma of the word of God. So, um, is that is there anything to that? Am I at all understanding? No, you're absolutely right. You're right. You've picked up on something very 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 important, and you've picked up the idea of of the, the of, of consciousness. And you've done it. You've you analyzed uh, the issue correctly. Uh, basically, what he came to the conclusion is the conclusion about if you're going to say who is God, God is is the consciousness, is human wow. consciousness. So we're God. That's that's yeah. So uh, you know, it's not the it's so that's not the God of the Bible, uh, and uh, and it's not the the God of the Reformed faith. <laughs> And right. so this is, uh, a matter of fact, it's not the God of the historic Lutheran faith, but nevertheless, this is the God of the modern world. You see, it, it, a neat way to trace this, too, beyond going back further than Feuerbach and, say, for example, Schleiermacher and even Kant, you see, what, what makes the question I like always put for, for, towards my students is this, what makes Descartes' philosophy modern? What makes Descartes' philosophy modern? You probably know the paradigm that Descartes is understood as the father of modern philosophy. But what makes it modern? What makes it modern is reality is found in reason. Reality Mm -hmm. is found in the mind. Reality is found in consciousness. Mm -hmm. At this time, up until that time, no one had actually said reality is in consciousness. You see, nothing. reality is found in the mind. Oh, yes, Plato's a rationalist, but he never articulated, articulated it quite like this before. 
So, you see, what happens is, as you work through from Descartes in the 1630s and 1640s, uh, in terms of his discourse on method and his, um, and his meditations, when you start seeing the progress of this philosophical discussion in, all the way into, um, <coughs> into uh, Kant and, and then the 19th century, you see, we come to a position by the end of the 19th century that consciousness, that consciousness is just merely human. Well, if I'm going to save Christianity in a context of culture that believes only in human consciousness, uh, and that's where reality is, how can I find reality in God? Oh, well, wonder if we make God consciousness. You see? <laughs> you see, we've rediscovered the deity. So your, your point of being a kind of atheistic kind of uh, a paradigm for the baptism of the Christian God into this paradigm is, is probably not far from wrong. It's probably very accurate. So you see, so now I've made, and that's what basically Schleiermacher does. He makes consciousness actually God. Boltmann absolutizes that, you see, strongly, and, uh, and, and makes it and puts it within the nuances of Christianity and the Christian God. And hey, so uh, hey, it's, it's an amazing kind of paradigm to follow, but if you're going to save Christianity and an age of Freudianism and everything else, this might be this might be a good way to go. You see. <laughs> I, hey, Bill, because your um, uh, Boltman is is the object of your or subject of your uh, PhD dissertation, but but really your um, your passion uh, as well as what you're well known for is Van Til, uh, his apologetic approach. I'd like to bring these two things together. Uh, as we close up here and and ask if you couldn't perhaps provide a Vantillian critique of Boltman or um, how Vantill did address Boltman and um, well that, that that's sort of the the setup question maybe you can go ahead and, and spike it and and uh, knock it down <laughs> well, yeah, well that's an excellent question and um, you if you've read through my book uh, um, <laughs> The here is how I want to answer this, and I want to answer this very seriously in this way. I don't have any quotes from Van Til in that book at all. Mm-hmm. Okay, the book is applies Van Tilian apologetics from beginning to end. If mm-hmm. you want to see the application of the transcendental critique on a person that we see outside the realm of Orthodox Christianity, then I would suggest that you take a look at the book itself. And this, I am suggesting, is how it can be done. I'm hoping it's done fairly. I'm hoping it's done in, 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 in honor of Van Til, and, and it would be something that Van Til would see as exactly as he picks up and reads from beginning to end. He would say, this book I can see is a product of somebody who has taken my, my work very seriously and applied it to an individual or a system of thought, 
and this is how it should come out. Okay. In that, obviously, I don't come at the end as a, in terms of a response to that. The point is, is the application of the transcendental critique where you unpack, you unpack the structures of an individual's thought to reveal what is at the core of his belief, okay, at the core of his belief. And that's what we find, at the core of his belief is, is God is the consciousness of the human individuality. And so that's how I would uh, say that. Let me, let me just, maybe this might help you. Uh, uh, the thing that I am very concerned about in my work in Ventilian Apologetics, I even tell my MTI OPC class at the Ministerial Training Institute of the OPC, for those who are listening and who are not familiar with that, but when I tell those, 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 those pastors and elders who are sitting in that class, I say, I don't make any apology concerning my obsession with Van Til at this point. What is that obsession? The obsession that I've had in my work is the starting point. Yes, yes. The starting point. My works ha- on Van Til have been correct, have been correctly critiqued, I believe. This is a correct criticism by those out there. That when you read my works on Van Til or my stuff on Van Til in which I am reflecting on him, is that I don't much give you uh, implications or applications to go into the marketplace. I don't give you those type of illustrations. And there's a reason for that, because in my judgment, the Vantillian apologetic is in danger of falling away because we don't know how to start. We're not honoring his starting point consistently. And so I am obsessed on making sure that we get the starting point right, because in terms of my eschatological understanding of theology and life, if you don't start right, you don't end right. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I could argue that the Boltmann book is an implication of that. Now, the second area is that what I am finding is that those who say themselves, speak of themselves of being Ventilian, do not understand how to work with the transcendental critique. And now, how can I get through the structures of thought? And how can I unpack the structures of a person's thought to get at the core belief? And therefore, when I see that core belief, see that the core belief and its system of thought is antithetical to the Christian faith. And so I'm obsessed with the transcendental critique in terms of its end, and that is in terms of Van Til's position. And this is that antithesis must always precede common grace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Antithesis must always precede common grace, and by that we mean that a holistic system of thought, the holistic system of thought that a non-Christian presents, is always, in terms of its holism, antithetical to the Christian to the Christian religion, and uh, and in terms of orthodoxy in the Scripture, even though there may be the particulars of a common grace insight of that. And that's where Boltman got it wrong, and uh, that's where the critique comes in. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so you, you, you work right through that, and you try to unpack it. 
And, and, and this is one of the great things about Van Til. In some ways, has been somewhat scolded on this, but I don't think, and I think somewhat unjustly. And that is, this is so important. This is so important, the transcendental critique, as you analyze someone, because you want to be absolutely fair to the system you're critiquing and representing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it is my hope that I have uh, represented uh, uh, Boltmann correctly, even, th- even though, yes, we are, in a sense, very strongly antithetical. Uh, but I hope that, uh, that, that it's been fair to him. Well, Dr. Dennison, this has been great. We appreciate you joining us uh, and taking your time to walk us through your book and, and Boltman. And uh, I want to encourage our listeners to go look at Dr. Dennison's other works. You can, you can find a very interesting book, Paul's Two-Age Construction and Apologetics, and also A Christian Approach to Interdisciplinary Studies in Search of a Starting Point and Method. And Jeff will be quick to add his chapter That's in right. Resurrection and Eschatology, <laughs> the fest trip to Dr. Richard B. Gaffin, Jr., uh, you can also uh, visit more and read more about us at reformedforum.org if you want to find our other programs and download any old ones or subscribe to our programs so that they're automatically downloaded to your computer. And we keep that page updated and fresh as possible. Uh, we want to thank everybody for listening, and of course we look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>